Well, we will start again this morning in Galatians chapter 3 and uh, move to Galatians 5 eventually. We looked at Galatians 3 verse 3 last week. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Here we see Paul contrasting the spirit and the flesh as two possible pathways to perfection. What does Paul mean in verse 3 by being perfected? Well, evidently, this perfection he expects us to understand comes through the spirit. He is rebuking the Galatians for thinking that they could be perfected by the flesh. And that's actually what Paul is pushing for in this chapter and actually in the entire book of Galatians. He's concerned that the Galatian believers were abandoning the spirit as the path of being perfected and were instead turning to the flesh in hopes of achieving this perfection. And that means then that whatever this perfection is, it can be counterfeited by the flesh. In other words, according to the external appearance of things, the way that everything looks outside to other people who look on, the difference between being perfected by the flesh and being perfected by the spirit is nearly imperceptible at first. It wasn't that they were going in two different directions to achieve two different goals. It was that they were so close that it seemed that both were equally viable options for getting to that goal of being perfected. It wasn't that one led to perfection while the other led to deep sinfulness. They both seemed to head in the same direction. And this then is what we must understand as we begin this morning. The flesh can produce a very rigorous morality. The flesh can produce upstanding Moral people whose whole life seems to be on track for perfection. And yet, it ends up being nothing but a testimony to the power of human flesh. There's a lot of upstanding moral people whose whole life is nothing but a showcase of what the flesh can achieve. The essential mark of Christianity then is not how far we have come in our external conformity to God's law. Paul says before he came to Christ, he had mastered it. The essential mark of Christianity lies elsewhere. The essence of Christianity isn't so much in what we do, but it is in whom we trust. Christianity is a new place of trust. And Paul calls all who trust in themselves... To be perfected by the flesh, he calls them foolish. Why does Paul consider the path to perfection by the flesh to be foolishness? Well, we looked at that last week. Jesus Christ, he says, has been publicly portrayed as crucified in their stead. And now then he says to turn back to the law, to turn back to the flesh, having seen the cross, declare those things to be incapable of producing righteousness, That is indeed foolishness. And defining what Paul means here by this word being perfected, 
If we can understand what he's talking about there, it will help us to understand what it means to walk in the Spirit. We have the possibility of potentially misunderstanding what Paul is saying here when he talks about being perfected by the flesh. Some people hear that statement that we noted in the previous sermon about the flesh, that we need to be set free from the law in order to truly serve God. They see that as in some way encouraging us to live any way that we want, completely apart from God's law. But what we've got to understand is that the new covenant that gives us the Spirit actually aims for the same goal as the old covenant. What we must understand is that the new covenant actually aims to fulfill in us the law of God. It promises that God will cause us to walk in His ways and to be careful to obey His laws. And what's glorious about the new covenant is that it aims not simply to produce an external appearance of keeping the law in human beings, Rather, it aims to produce righteousness and the fulfillment of the law from the inside out. What does that mean? What does it mean to fulfill the law? If the new covenant came true for you, what would you look like if God fulfilled it? Well, before we can understand what it means to walk in the Spirit, and that's the main thing that we'll be looking at today, we've got to understand what is it that the new covenant aims to produce? And I've quoted for you Ezekiel 36, 27 many times, but just listen to it. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways and be careful to obey my rules. God's intention in giving us the new covenant is to produce something that the old covenant never could. Listen to Psalm 81, verses 10 through 13. I'm the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, Israel, I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel did not submit to me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. That was God's desire for ancient Israel, that they would walk in his ways. He brought them up out of Egypt. His intention was to pour his blessing out upon them if they would keep his law. Of course, Israel refused to submit, so God gave them over to their own stubborn hearts to follow their own rebellion. And this is the situation that the new covenant aims to correct. If Israel could not be depended upon to listen and walk in God's ways, then God himself would cause them to do it by placing his spirit within them. What are God's ways? And what path does he intend to cause us to walk in. The question is significant because the New Testament makes clear that simply obeying the Ten Commandments is not what God had in view when He promised that Israel would walk in His ways. And we know that because of what Jesus has to say in Matthew 5. Remember that passage, you've heard that it has been said, but I say to you. In Matthew 5, Christ expands and He broadens And he deepens the demands of the Old Testament law. He works to show his listeners that merely obeying the law externally was not with the true intent that God had in giving the law in the first place. He wasn't looking merely for a nation of people who never committed the external act of adultery. Instead, he was looking for a nation 
whose righteousness extended even to their own internal thought processes, to no lust. This is what Jesus was getting at when he answered the question about the two greatest commandments. He said that all the commandments of God's law hang upon these two greatest of the commandments. In other words, these two greatest commandments form the essential character of the entire law. And by giving those laws, God was aiming to shape a society of people in which love for God and love for neighbor prevailed. Each one of the laws that God gave, in addition to these two greatest commandments, was intended to show externally what it would look like to love God and to love your neighbor in the national context of ancient Israel. The problem was that the human heart could never actually love. And so the external appearance of love never came true. The external requirements of the law then quickly substituted for the internal attitude of love for God and your neighbor that would drive you to manifest those external acts of love. If Israel had truly loved God and neighbor, she would have fulfilled the whole law. This is what the New Testament calls our attention to repeatedly. Jesus teaches us in Matthew 22 concerning the greatest commandments upon which all of the rest of the commandments depend. But listen to Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another because the one who loves has fulfilled the law. Romans 13, 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You can read this in John 14, 15, in John 14, 21, in John 14, 23, in 1 John 5, 3. In James chapter 2, verse 8, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. So when God says in the new covenant, he would cause his people to walk in his ways, what is he promising? What are the ways of the new covenant that God will cause his people to walk in? And the answer is not merely in external conformity to God's law. Conservative Christians can pause here and examine their own hearts and practices. As conservative Christians, we can come to equate our conservatism with the ways of God. That's not to say that God doesn't care about the way that we dress, the music we listen to, the entertainment choices, the food or beverages we choose, the political agendas that we endorse. But it does mean that simply manifesting an external conformity to conservative Christianity is not what God is after in the New new Covenant. All of those things can be manufactured by human ability. And we must be careful of redefining righteousness that God is working to produce in the New Covenant from the inside out, redefining that in terms of merely externalism. There are plenty of secular conservatives who make the same lifestyle choices that many Christians make. But this does not mean that they are fulfilling God's law and walking in His ways. At its heart, the new covenant aims to create a people who love God and who love their neighbor as themselves. And loving God and loving neighbor is actually a much more radical way of life than simply conforming to the externals of God's law. Think about it this way. Try walking through your day, looking at every person you meet and thinking this. I must love that person as I love myself. What would that look like? 
What would that require of you to love others as you love yourself? If you think about the new covenant in this way, then that has something to do, if you're married, like I am, with the way that you squeeze the toothpaste tube in the bathroom. If your wife prefers it done a certain way and you don't take note of that and conform yourself to what she wants, you are not manifesting love towards her. The command to love expects far more than could ever have been written in the code of the Mosaic law. The law of love is actually far more demanding and radical than anything that Moses' law ever required of Israel. To love goes far beyond merely obeying the law. To love is to penetrate into exactly what the essence of the law is. It is to fulfill the law. That is what it means to love. And this is the promise of the new covenant. I will cause you to walk in my ways, God says. How does God intend to bring this about? According to the new covenant, it it will be that God will put his spirit within us and cause us to walk in his ways. Spirit and walking. Those two words. What does it mean to have the spirit within me and to walk in God's ways? How does that work? What is the relationship between the spirit and walking? And there's a passage in the New Testament that answers that question for us. And it's in Galatians 5 and we'll read it together this morning. Galatians 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. How does God intend to bring about the fulfillment of His law? It is by His Spirit. But that Spirit causes us to walk. What is the relationship between our walk day by day and the Spirit of God? Well, Galatians is the book of the Scripture that tells us what that looks like. What does Paul notice, first of all, what does Paul say? The fruits of the Spirit are. Notice verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And look back at verse 13. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If the Spirit of God were to produce in us the fruits of love, it would be a walk that fulfills the whole law. And so we need to understand what is the relationship between our walking and the Spirit of God. And the answer that Paul gives to us here in these verses as to the relationship between our walk and the Spirit is given to us in terms that we find in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. What does Paul mean by that? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Well, think about what he's saying here. We're commanded to walk in the Spirit. We're given nine fruits of the Spirit. What does Paul mean when he says love is a fruit? 
Well, there's many different possibilities, I think. If you think about fruits and love, what's similar between the two? Well, fruits have seeds, they have pits. Is Paul saying that each of these fruits of the Spirit has a hard kernel or a pit inside of it? There's a pit inside of love. Is that what he's saying? Is that the way that love and fruits are similar? Perhaps another possibility is that fruits nourish the body. They're a food substance. Is Paul saying that your life will be more healthy if you have these fruits in, his, in your life? Fruits, unlike vegetables, taste sweet. These are fruits, after all. Is Paul saying that love is sweet, like a fruit? What does Paul mean when he calls love a fruit? The similarity between love and fruits like apples is that love, like an apple, is produced by something outside of itself. An apple does not produce itself. The tree produces the apple. Similarly, love does not produce itself, or in this context, I don't produce my own love that I manifest. Rather, the Spirit produces the fruit of love in me, and that's why Love is called one of the fruits of the Spirit. And this under, helps us to understand then the connection between walking in the Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit. Remember Ezekiel 36, 27, I'll put my Spirit within them and cause them to walk in my ways. We are commanded here in this passage to walk by the Spirit in verse 16. Walking in the Spirit results then in the Spirit producing His fruits in me. The fruit of love then is the way, the path that God is causing us to walk in by His Spirit. He puts His Spirit within me. His Spirit produces love in me. He bears that fruit in me. As I walk in the Spirit, the fruit of love appears and God's purpose that I should walk in His ways has been accomplished. The question is then, what does it mean in verse 16 to walk in the Spirit? And I want to give you two different ways of thinking about it this morning as we finish up here. The first one is a little bit more theoretical. We're going to get two words that define for us what it means to walk in the Spirit. The second way is going to hopefully be very practical, a what do I do on Monday morning to walk in the Spirit sort of an answer. I want you to look verse first of all, at what it means to walk in the Spirit theoretically by looking at verse 22 again. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The Spirit produces love. Now look with me at chapter 5 or 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, he means no product of the human hands counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Verse 22, what produces love? The Spirit. Verse 6, what produces love? Faith. Faith works through to love. And so what does it mean to walk in the Spirit so that He produces His fruit of love in you? It means... To live a life of faith, dependence, reliance. Let me show you another parallel set of, set of expressions like this. Turn back to chapter 3. Verse 23. 
Now, before faith came, now what we've seen in chapter 5, verse 6 would tell us that this would be before the Spirit came then. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So being held captive under law is the old state of affairs. Being delivered by the coming faith, being set free by the coming of faith is the new set of circumstances. And so think about that in terms of what Paul says in chapter 5, verse 18. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. In chapter 5, being led by the Spirit is what it means to walk in the Spirit. It's what it means for the Spirit to produce His fruits in you. And that, in chapter 5, verse 18, is set in distinction to the coming of the, uh, the, 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 the work of the Spirit is set in distinction to our being under the law, living in the flesh. Spirit versus under the law. Chapter 3, verse 23, it's faith versus being under the law. So what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? I think Paul can only mean that it means to live by faith. And we see this, I'll show you one more in the book of Galatians. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. How do I walk in the Spirit? How do I come under the influence of the Spirit so that He produces His fruit of love in me? Chapter 3, verse 5. Does He who supplies the Spirit to you... That's what I want to know. How do I get the Spirit so that He causes me to walk in God's ways? Does He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? How do you get the Spirit so that He produces the fruits of love in you? Answer, the same way you got the Spirit in the very first place, by hearing with faith. And so this helps us then to understand what life in the Spirit is. Christianity is not first of all about what we do. Christians are not just people who behave better than everyone else. Christianity is not first of all about increased effort. Christians are not just people who try harder than everyone else. Christianity is first of all a matter of a transfer of trust, a new location for confidence, renouncing faith in myself, relying anew upon another. Christianity is a matter of living by faith in the Son of God for everything. Initial salvation, ongoing sanctification, future glorification. We trust in Him for initial salvation. We trust in Him for future glorification. And Paul's point in Galatians is, keep doing that for your daily life. Your walk in the Spirit. Righteousness comes to us. Through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and walking in the Spirit is first of all a matter of faith. So what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? First of all, it is a matter of dependence. Walking in the Spirit begins with dependence, faith in the Son of God and His Spirit whom He has put in me. But there's a second part to walking in the Spirit. If you look back at chapter 5, verse 16, if you want to bear the fruits of love, if you want to see the fruits of love in your life, you must, verse 16, walk 
in the Spirit. We are commanded to walk in the Spirit. What does Paul mean by walk in the Spirit? By walk, I don't think Paul is thinking of walking as another specific command that Christians are to do. In other words, I don't think he's saying, Christians, don't steal. Christians, don't lie. Christians, serve one another. You Christians, be sure to pray. And you Christians, be sure to walk in the Spirit. Every command in the New Testament is a command given to define how the Christian walks. The command to walk then, I think, in chapter 5 or 16, is a command to live all of our lives in the Spirit. The command walk in the Spirit is to shape, it's given to shape how we go about obeying all of the commands that are given to us in the Scriptures. You could substitute any one of those commands for this command in verse 16 to walk. When he says walk in the Spirit, he has in mind, serve one another by the Spirit. When he says walk in the Spirit, he has in mind, avoid sexual immorality by the power of the Spirit. He has all of the commands in mind when he talks to us about walking day by day in the Spirit. And the reason I think that's the case is because of what the New Covenant actually says. It says God will cause us to walk in His ways. His ways are all of the specific aspects of what it means to love that the New Testament gives to us. Not stealing. If you truly loved your neighbor, you wouldn't steal. If you truly loved God, you would pray. If you truly loved your neighbor, you would pray for Him. All of these specific commands in the New Testament, God's ways of the New Covenant, these are all the ways that the New Covenant aims to cause us to walk in. And so... In each of those ways, we must walk, and the Spirit is given to cause that to happen. And so we could paraphrase the command of verse 16 this way, walk in all of God's ways by the Spirit. And what's interesting about this statement is that this command to walk embodies all the other commands in the New Testament. And each of those commands is directed to you. God does not command the Spirit to produce them in you. He says to you, pray for one another. He says to you, obey me. He says to you, love and submit and don't steal and don't lie. He addresses all of them to us as though we were responsible to obey them. And yet this responsibility to obey them is not in addition to the Spirit's work. It isn't that I supply about 50% of the energy to obey these commands and the Spirit makes up the 50% I don't have. It isn't even that the split is 99% the Spirit and I supply the remaining 1%. It is that I must walk, I must obey, I'm responsible to do it, but I must do it in the Spirit, totally relying upon Him. We are to obey but not in our own strength, first of all. We may walk, but it is God who causes us to walk. We, must, we may pray, but it is God who brings that about in us. 
We may obey, but it is God who causes us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The whole thing is the work of God by his spirit in us. And he accomplishes that by giving us his commands and telling us, obey that command in the power of the spirit within you. The relationship between God's work and my work is not like a balance where I supply some and God supplies the rest. It is that God supplies it all. And he works it all through me and in me. My role then is to cease striving in my own strength. It is to get out of the way, but it's not to sit back passive. It's not to sit back and lay in bed and wait for God to sanctify me by his spirit. Instead, it is to cease trusting in myself and to begin to walk forward no longer in self-reliance for righteousness, but trusting in the promises of God to work that righteousness in me. It is trusting in the Spirit to produce His fruits as I strive to love. It is living by faith in the Son of God. And the phrase then that I think best captures what it means to walk by the Spirit is dependence, but it is a dependent responsibility. How do we walk in the Spirit? Be responsible to obey God's commands. You are responsible to do it, but do it dependently and perhaps the best single word then to describe this is the word participation. And I have, over the last six months or so, been building an illustration, and I don't think it's quite complete yet. But I'll give you what I have so far. Imagine a car that's broken down in the garage. And it needs to be repaired, and there's no room in the garage. And so that car has got to get out into the driveway to be repaired. Imagine the father of that family saying to his kids, one of whom is three, another one who's two, and another one who just turned four. Imagine him saying to those kids, push the car out in the driveway, kids, giving them the command, do it, push the car out in the driveway. And the kids try, and the car doesn't move. And the dad says, push the car out in the driveway, and they try, and it doesn't move. And he says, push the car out in the driveway, and they try, and it doesn't move. That's exactly where a lot of Christians are. They have been pushing and pushing and pushing to do something they can never do on their own. The kids are relying upon their own ability to get the car out into the driveway. And it doesn't work. And eventually those kids give up in despair. It won't work, Dad. You may say to do it, but I know it will never happen. Well, what about if the father calls a tow truck and they back up out into the street hook the winch up to that car, and the father says, all right, kids, now push. Obey. Do it. And the kids say, I'm not doing it, Dad. We've already tried. It's not going to work. And the kids say, no, trust me. This time, I promise you, it will happen. I've got a power available that you know nothing about, and it will happen. Maybe the dad takes the kid around to see the strong cable attached to the front of the car to pull it out into the driveway. And he says, all right, now push. If those kids don't believe their father's promise that the car will roll back under the strength of that cable, they're not going to push. They're not going to try again. But if they genuinely rely upon their father's promise that the car will make it into the driveway, they will push and the car will end up in the driveway. And the only thing propelling them to push is the Father's promise that the car will end up in the driveway. 
We see this concept throughout the New Testament. By the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet it was not I, but it was the grace of God that is within me. 1 Corinthians 15.10. Romans 15 verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Look at Paul. Look at all that he did in obedience to Christ's command. How did that happen? It was Christ in him producing it. It was Christ in him doing it. So what does it look like very practically then to walk in the Spirit? What is the practice of walking in the Spirit day by day? And I think from previous messages, you have a picture in your mind. It means to live by faith in the Son of God, Galatians 2.20. It means to abide in the vine, John 15. What does that mean? It means to gaze upon the cross, first of all, until it crucifies you and brings you to despair of self. The gospel begins its work by creating faith. It begins its work of creating faith in us by stripping us of all self-confidence and filling our gaze instead with Christ. We saw that in Galatians 2. The gospel crucifies you and all of your self-reliance, and that's the place you start. Gaze upon the cross until you give up on life in the power of the human flesh. Many Christians gaze upon the law and give up. It's too much. I can't do it. Many Christians gaze upon the law and don't quite give up, but they still strive in the power of their own human flesh. And Paul says, no, no. Look at the cross. Christ Jesus publicly portrayed as crucified before your eyes. Look at it. Live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Gaze upon the cross. Let it crucify your self-reliance. Secondly, gaze upon the promise of the Spirit. Let God take you around to the front of the car and see the, see the strong cable that's attached. It's called His promises. Promises like this. The one who began a good work will complete it. The car will get out into the driveway. Look upon the strong cable of God's work that He has, has accomplished in Christ, that He says He will yet accomplish in Christ, that He says He is accomplishing in Christ today. Gaze upon the promise of the Spirit until the Word of God moves you to trust in Him and not in yourself. And then go to work, working hard in your struggle against sin, but always and only because God said that He would cause you to walk in His ways by the Spirit. In other words, the only reason you have to get up and try again, to keep up the fight against sin, to keep up the striving for holiness, the only reason that should propel a Christian forward is God's promises of success in the gospel. You have been so demolished by the cross that every ounce of self-confidence is gone and you conclude that what God has commanded is impossible in yourself, but read the gospel, the good news of what God has done to turn rebels into submissive and obedient worshipers and listen to those and believe them. Read your Bible, first of all, not for what you must do, but for what God himself has done. Look at that strong cable and then stand up and do what he calls you to do. Push the car in the confidence that all that he has done, he will continue to do until the day of Christ. He has put his spirit within you and salvation, sanctification is guaranteed. In fact, it's done. You are sanctified in Jesus Christ. 
It's simply a matter of working that out now in your life. God gives us the gospel, the news of what He has done to propel us forward in sanctification. Think about one of those inflatable men. You've seen them that stand out the front, the guys with the floppy arms out the front of businesses, and you run the air up through the tube, and the guy flops his arm up and down. What keeps that man standing? The airflow up through that column. Take away that airflow, and what happens to him? He falls down. Put the airflow back, he stands up. The airflow is the promises of the gospel. Take away the good news of the gospel, and every Christian ought to give up and flop down in despair. And if you take away the promise of the gospel, and he continues to strive, he is striving in his own human self-confidence. Give that man the good news of the gospel back, and he will stand up and press on and strain every muscle. He will work out his salvation. Because he knows and believes and trusts and rests upon and can't imagine any chance of success at all apart from the good news that God will work in me the willing and the doing of his good pleasure as I labor to work out my sanctification. Paul in the rest of the New Testament locates the decisive cause of all human righteousness in God and God alone. He is the one who works in me to produce the willing and the doing of his good pleasure. And if the power of omnipotence is behind your sanctification, if he commands you to rise and take up your bed and walk, then in faith you must. In faith you will. That faith will propel you to do what God commands. You will fight with all your strength. You will fight hard. You will labor. You will strive. Not because you rely upon yourself. But if you start with the cross, the gospel, and God's work, then your striving will be by faith in the Son of God. And the end result of this will be spirit-wrought love, human righteousness to the glory of God alone. At the end of the day, it is the giver that gets the glory. The spring from which all of our righteousness flows, wherever we find that spring coming up out of the ground, that is where we ought to lay all of the glory and praise for that righteousness. The paradigm of the gospel teaches us that that source, that spring, is God. He is the fountain of all human righteousness. The human will has never successfully produced one act of righteousness since the fall except for the life of Christ. Every act of the human will is filled with sin. It is impossible for a man to live in his own strength to obey the commandments of God. And the cross drives that point home to us like no other. If righteousness were possible by human performance to keep the law, then Christ died for nothing. But he did die. He loved me. And he gave himself for me. And that is the best news for dead sinners like us. That is the news that will propel you forward into the eternal kingdom in a desperate, unrelenting pursuit of holiness and sanctification. And all of that will be for the glory of God alone. Lord God, thank you for what you have done to give us your Holy Spirit, to cause us to walk in your ways. May we not bypass this rich provision May we not get up our own strength and strive 
and the power of the human flesh. May we rest in all that you have done for us in the gospel. I pray, Lord, that day by day you would bring us to the point of self-despair so that we would look up to the one who has died to make us a people for God's own possession. And Lord, as we observe the Lord's table now, I pray that you would increase increase our confidence in Christ. We have before us now a picture that it is his body, his blood that sustains us day by day. How can we live apart from food? How can we live apart from faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me? We pray that our observance of the Lord's Supper this morning would become a means of grace to us, preparing us now to walk in the Spirit this week. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.